Okay, hello everybody and welcome to Investing with IBD sponsored by Market Smith. Today is July 22nd, 2020. I'm your host Arusha Pierce and today we have Andrew Chanin. Andrew is the co-founder and CEO of Procure AM. Thanks for being here, Andrew. Thanks for having me. On today's podcast, we are going to talk about the current markets. Uh, we will talk about Andrew's new exciting space ETF, and then we will end the episode with a few current ideas. Let's get into the current market. And so the market continues to be in an uptrend. Uh, we have three distribution days on the S&P 500, two on the NASDAQ. We are in the middle of earnings season, so the next few weeks are going to be pretty interesting. Andrew, what are your thoughts about uh, this market? Uh, certainly, we're living in interesting times. Uh, you know, we're seeing a lot of big, well-known tech names just really, really running and getting a lot of excitement. We're seeing a lot of new entrants to the marketplace also getting really excited about investing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, cer certainly, I think there's a lot of positive things that could be said about that, but also you know, a lot of cautionary things that um, could also be taken from it. And you know, so, I, so I think it's a great time for, for market education and to, to learn and to look at past um, you know, market manias and busts, as well as just you know, to take this time. You know, typically, things are a little bit slower in the summer. Maybe this year will be different. But um, you know, it's, it's really a great time to you know, take your mind off of maybe all the, the craziness that may be going on uh, outside and right. to, to, to educate ourselves and to, to learn more about you know, market histories and you know, fi find companies that are, are of interest. So as opposed to necessarily just chasing what someone says is a great idea, you know, kind of learning for yourself and doing some of your own due diligence. But um, you know, one, one of the really wild things too is seeing how um, you know, a, a lot of kind of inflationary assets are um, not necessarily on the fixed income side, but looking at the commodity side and looking yeah. at um, you know, so, some of the, the big um, you know, tech and healthcare names and, and stocks like those and some of the industrials and consumer staples and seeing how some of them are actually doing. Um, and you're know, trying to figure out, is this a time where we'll see more inflation because of you know, easy monetary policy or stimulus or potentially you know, artificially low interest rates um, and what that will do to other assets and just kind of making sure that uh, you know, people out there look at their entire portfolio as uh, one giant living, breathing um, thing and seeing how it could react in different types of environments. And, you know, maybe for people to have some more diversification so that they can weather, you know, any, any storms that may arise. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when you, when you mentioned uh, inflationary and commodities, I thought the first thing you were going to say was, uh, the gold and silver, because they're they're hitting new highs too. Uh, but yeah, you're absolutely right. It, it, we are in interesting times uh, with a lot of money out there, low interest rates, and a lot of things are starting to rise. Uh, so spreading out that money definitely is a smart idea. So Andrew, let's get into how you got into this whole space, how you got into finance and the investment industry. And then obviously right now as the CEO of a, a really cool ETF company. So I'd say I became interested in markets at a, at a very young age. I remember right before dinner, there would be a segment on CNBC, um, buy, sell or hold. And we had to watch that, that, uh, you know, segment before dinner. So, you know, we had to stop what we were doing, watch that. And it got me interested in markets and that's cool. Yeah, you know, early, you know, late '90s, early 2000s, and uh, you know, certainly volatile times, and you know, seeing the the dot com bubble and things like that, you know, actually probably helped me in you know, trying to formulate opinions and building out my own kind of portfolios or or personal strategies. Um, so I was interested in uh, the financial world at a, at a fairly early age, not necessarily knowing I was going to do anything with that professionally. But come college, I um, really started uh, focusing more on the financial world and. Um, through various internships, um, I eventually ended up getting um, a job on the floor of the American Stock Exchange, working for the, one of the largest ETF specialist trading firms at the time, Kellogg Group. And it was a really interesting time. This was you know, 2007. ETFs were really starting to pick up popularity. New types of products were being issued. Um, and also, we were seeing, not dissimilar to now, you know, some, some early signs of uh, you know, market volatility or some headwinds. And uh, whether it be geopolitical or economic, um, you know, I, I see you know, a lot of things kind of similar, 
but uh, it kind of made me you know, learn what's going on in the markets very quickly. I was able to actually work my way up from being a clerk to becoming a lead market maker for newly issued um, global and international equity ETFs. And from that, it really kind of gave me a global macro perspective towards investing and realizing that you know, something that happens all the way around the world might affect you in your own backyard. And you know, trying to figure out how these different events may affect other events um, and kind of looking for opportunities from that. And at the same time, um, we started seeing more types of exchange traded products being issued, thematics. Um, our kind of, we're kind of a, a new area at this time, and our company was the, the specialist or lead market maker in a lot of these thematic products that we were seeing come to market. And so kind of got a, a firsthand knowledge of figuring out what kind of products the, the end investor actually wanted and which ones were maybe too carved out, too niche, or ones that maybe the indexes themselves didn't do a good job of capturing those themes and really learned a lot of far, as far as you know, how ETFs work as well as you know, all the different types of participants, whether it's service providers, market makers, or the end investors in these products. And uh, I took that education to help build out a, a prop trading desk um, that wanted to get into the ETF space, but had no ETF experience. So I was poached for my firm to help build out that prop trading desk. And it was there that I was actually making a lot of relationships with ETF issuers at the time, giving them ideas for products or ideas for things that they could do to maybe make their products more marketable. And eventually, um, one of these principals said, you know, why do you keep on giving us your ideas? Just try launching your own ETF company. And that's when I started uh, creating ETFs and sponsoring them with my first company that I started back in 2010, um, launching uh, uh, the, the first products um, under that brand in 2012. Um, and really kind of taking all the experiences that I had, uh, uh, creating about 10 different products while, um, at, uh, at the first company I started, I realized, you know, I wanted to build a much more robust company, one that did a lot of things that could help interface with a lot of different types of companies. Um, you know, there's going to be a lot of entrants in my opinion, into the ETF space that aren't already here, even though it is a crowded marketplace, but mm -hmm. you know, we don't want to see every new entrant as a competitor. We'd like to help them also achieve their goals. And so we kind of built out our company to um, do things in financial IP, to do things in exchange traded product consulting, and to launch our own ideas and help third parties use our infrastructure to get their ideas off the ground as well. Yeah, so so really going back to like around 2007 through 2010, you, you just started seeing a lot of demand. Uh, so is that what happened? You just started seeing a lot of demand from a lot of institutional customers uh, just looking for or having an appetite for these specialized ETFs? So I, I drank the Kool-Aid, you know, okay. I, I was, I was kind of told early on in my career in the ETF world that ETFs were mutual funds 2.0 and mm. you know, ETFs essentially emerged out of the financial crash of 87. And um, they were made to hopefully fill some voids that um, that mutual funds didn't have the ability to do, like intraday liquidity, as opposed right. to all the liquidity happening on the close. You know, ETFs were kind of built to, you know, maybe mitigate some of the problems or shortcomings of mutual funds. And you know, the way I saw it was that mutual funds were, you know, a ten, you know, tens of trillions of dollar industry and in assets at the time. And at the time, ETFs were, you know, maybe two trillion in assets or so. And from my perspective that gap was going to keep on getting smaller and smaller and that ETFs in my opinion were going to to really give mutual funds a run for their money. And so, you know, with that in mind, you know, it was kind of like, all right, well, if this is the future that that I, you know, see, how do I position myself to to benefit from this this trend change? And sure enough, you know, as days go go on, you know, ETFs are really picking up a lot of steam not just right. domestically but around the world. Yeah. And so, you know, seeing that and then kind of realizing that there's different technologies or different industries that people want to get exposure to. To me, I wanted to create ETFs to help people get diversified exposure to these different themes. Well, it, it, it's, I, I mean, now looking back, it's pretty amazing that this didn't happen way before. Uh, uh, because uh, probably before 2007, you know, the really a lot of the ETFs, at least that I, I knew, were just kind of the larger index uh, ETFs and things like that. But now over the last 10 years, it's just amazing at how specialized uh, these ETFs uh, and sp very specific how, how they've gotten. Now, you, you, uh, you were heavily involved in one ETF that a lot of people are aware of right now, right? The one that's based on cybersecurity. Yes. So, so my company, Pure Funds, um, that, that I had founded, 
uh, was the sponsor of uh, the world's first cybersecurity ETF. Um, Hack. It was a you know a great story of uh, you know great timing with the right theme, and I, I remember we um, had partnered to to launch this product back in 2014. And about two weeks after that product launched, if you remember, the the Sony cyber attack happened. Yeah. Uh, most of that being uh-huh. attributed to South or to North Korea, but no one really necessarily knows exactly what happened there or how it happened. Um, but it made cybersecurity front page news. And it was really kind of no looking back as far as uh, you know, interest in the cybersecurity industry. And you know, certainly that's the hope, I think, uh, of anyone launching a thematic ETF is that they'll, they'll get it at you know, just the right time where public interest and investment demand um, is also there to meet it. Um, unfortunately, that doesn't happen all the time. But you know, a lot of great lessons were, were learned from that successful uh, product. And and you know, how, how uh, for thematic uh, DTS, you know, how do you stick out? It just seems like there are so many now. How, how do you appeal to? Because in the end, you have to get the institutional uh, institutional investors a lot more interested in bring up more of the liquidity. And I guess you have to survive like three years. You have to last three years, and then it can get on some of the the larger institutions' books so they can start uh, trading them. It really is an uphill battle, but mm-hmm. you need to have a lot of your game plan figured out before you launch the product. It's tough okay. to, to make changes on the fly once the product's out there. So, so much of what's really important is kind of building a strong foundation. And there's you know a lot of things that you can do. None of them guarantee success, but certainly if you don't have most, if not all of them in place, um, you know, you, you may be doomed for failure. So, you know, some of the things are, you know, when getting into the thematic space for me is I always want to be first. Uh, you okay. know, there's the Ricky Bobby, if you're not first, you're last uh, <laughs> saying, which I think has gotten pretty popular in our industry yes. and others. But really, um, you know, to get the attention, um, especially for a thematic product, um, you want to be first. Because if you're not first, there's going to be so many other articles and build up and assets in another product. It's tough to, to topple um, you know, a, a first-to-market product in a theme. So you know, that, that's important. But at the same time, you don't want to rush a product out just to be first. You need to make sure that you have an index that you believe in and that you can stand behind. So just saying that you want to create a theme product and going out and launching it, well, that index that your fund might be tracking might not be what an end investor actually wants. So you need to take a significant amount of time working with that index provider to actually see if how that index is constructed is actually what someone that wants to invest in that theme would hope to have or is expecting to have because there's certainly not every product is for everyone. And, you know, people will inevitably ask, especially when you're the first product to do something, oh, well, why is this company in it and this company isn't and vice versa? Mm -hmm. And you you need to have defensible answers for this. And so, you know, working with index providers, especially for me, when, um, you know, creating a theme product, it's really important to to know that that index provider may also have some background or expertise in that specific theme. So, um, you know, when, when creating UFO, we made sure that there was an individual with a significant depth of knowledge um, in the space industry. So, you know, the index to me is, you know, one of the most important parts before you actually launch your product, having that built out. And you know, part of that is, like I said, you know, making it so that it has things that an actual end investor would want. But also, the market making community is very important. If you build a product that's extremely difficult for a market maker to hedge, your spread is going to be really wide, and that might that's be unattractive then for your end uh, for your end investor. So there's different things that you can try to do in building out the the index and how the mechanics of the product so that it's something that is you know very user friendly and something that's uh, you know very hedgeable and affordable for people to trade. So you know I, that that's all. Kind Kind of the, the nuts and bolts in the background. Yeah. Certainly, I've always been a believer that you know a ticker can also help sell. So you know, everyone that launches an ETF has one thing in common, and that's that they have to have a ticker. And so, if you don't use having a ticker as kind of a marketing opportunity, it's a missed opportunity. So you know, if you have the ability to come up with a clever ticker that encompasses that theme well, you know, I remember back from uh, my trading days on the floor, hearing people yelling "moo." a uh, famous agribusness ETF by uh, a company, Anek <laughs> Market Ventures. Um, That's excellent. And you just, you just hear them you know, yelled across the trading floor and things like that stick in people's heads. So having a memorable ticker, something that represents the product, although that's not necessarily going to make the product a, a better product or increase performance, but um, you know, so much of the, of the ETF game is marketing, positioning, um, standing out and being memorable. So you know, a ticker is one way that you can hopefully try to help in that, in that uh, progress. But then really 
um, you know, it, it's having a theme, one that has, if you're doing thematic ETFs, one that might have a long-term um, play towards it, um, something that people maybe aren't experts in and they want yeah. diversification. Yeah. By doing ETFs, you could have a domestic ETF, you could have a, a global ETF. So being able to provide exposure to investors, to companies from around the world that they might not be able to easily get exposure to, um, you know, is another way that you can also provide something that investors might be looking for. And, you know, because you're, it's an earlier technology, an earlier industry, um, you know, in many cases could mean that it's a riskier one. So for people to try to pick one, two, three companies to play that theme, you know, could also be a dangerous game. So not that you're guaranteed for success by diversification, but by having, you know, a once, you know, a, you know, an easy instant diversifier, such as an ETF, where you can buy into a theme and have exposure to many companies from around the world doing all different things, you can reduce individual company risk. And I think that that's something that also um, is something that you uh, might be looking for if you're an investor trying to invest in a thematic product. Perfect. So the market continues to be in an uptrend. Uh, but remember, we have started earnings season. And so make sure you know when your stocks are reporting so you can decide whether to hold through earnings or not. Let's take a quick break. But when we return, we are going to talk about Andrew's cool new space ETF, UFO. We'll be back. I am here with Scott St. Clair. Scott's one of our senior product coaches at MarketSmith. Now, Scott, there are a ton of publicly traded stocks just on the U.S. I think it's over 5,000 stocks. Who has the time to go through all of these stocks and find the very best ones? Yeah, most people don't, right? So what you need is a tool like MarketSmith. We have decades of research on what makes a great winning stock. So we've done all the research for you. So we're going to try to highlight those specific stocks with those great data points. So if you're looking for that next great potential big winner, orange stock ideas button, you just click on it and you've got some of the main reports that we use, including the Growth 250. Yeah, and the Growth 250 is the first list that I go through on the weekends. Yeah, it's the most popular one, but there are others. There's the Breaking Out Today, Stocks Near a Pivot, and then the Blue Dot list, right, which is very popular. It's gonna show you the stocks with the best relative strength. So we've done a lot of the work for you. What you have to do is review these lists. You're going to come up with some of the best ideas in that current market environment. Perfect. Mark Smith saves you time and makes investment research that much easier. For more information, go to Investors.com slash podcast 2020. Andrew Channon is our guest on Investing with IBD, sponsored by MarketSmith. Okay, Andrew, let's talk about your new ETF, UFO. And are there really that many companies that are involved in the space business? Because it's, you know, I mean, I can think of a couple, but it, it was, I was pretty surprised that you could build a whole index uh, around uh, this business. So the short answer is yes. Okay. Uh, the, the long answer is that there's companies from all around the world doing all different sorts of things in the space industry, from you know, private companies that are really small that are looking for funding to mm -hmm. large publicly traded companies. And if you look at um, our fund UFO, which tracks the S Network Space Index, um, what you'll find is over 30 publicly traded companies from around the world doing all different types of things across the space industry. Um, wow. in, that, in that index, you'll actually see that at least 80% of the companies are what the index provider um, classifies as pure play companies. So those companies that are deriving more than 50% of their revenues from space-related businesses. But like you said, um, you know, it is you know, fairly a new industry. You know, we have come a long way since the early days of the space race. But in this industry, you also have some you know, really large players, some you know, conglomerates or diversified players, and they do so much in space that it, you, know, you almost needed to have them in the index, but because they also might do a lot of other things across aerospace and defense that might not necessarily be space related, um, that tranche of companies can only go up to about 20% of the overall fund. So it's a really interesting mix of um, you know, consumer, commercial, government contracting companies, whether they be pure play or they be a more diversified company. Yeah, and it seems like really over like the last 10, maybe 15 years, the, this whole area has just exploded, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I remember growing up years ago, and I was really into space and the space shuttle. And 
when I was really young, we went and saw the Columbia takeoff. I think it was like an 83 or something uh, uh, like that. And that's where there's so much excitement with space. We'd watch it on TV during school. Uh, and then it kind of went away for, for a long time. Uh, but now over the last, uh, especially the last few years, but it seems like over the last like 10 plus years or so, it's been building and building. And now there are a lot of people watching the SpaceX launch uh, what a couple uh, a month ago or six weeks ago, and and people wanted to stop and they didn't want to uh, yeah, attend a meeting because they wanted to free up their time to watch uh, that launch. It, it really has changed so much in the last several years, and you know you go back to the early days of the space program, and it was really more of a patriotic and in, in some yeah. cases a vanity project. Um, you're something to say, hey, look at what we can do. Yeah. Um, and, and more recently, it's actually become, you know, a national security issue. It's, it's, a, it's a really important area, not just for investment, but for, for governments and militaries to understand and be able to operate in that it, space has become an essential business in, in almost every sense of the word. And it touches our lives more than most people even realize. So, you know, so much happens behind the scenes. So many people say, oh, space, it's so far away. It's all science fiction. It doesn't affect me. But space is affecting, you know, our everyday lives, whether you want to admit it or not. And so, you know, we're at a really interesting time where we're seeing the likes of, you know, billionaires from around the world building their own companies with their own financing. We're seeing things like government saying, okay, well, we don't need to build, own, and operate all the technology. We're willing to work with you know, con uh, commercial companies and have them help us. And so you're really seeing this industry change. And it's been these last couple of years where new technologies have come along, new companies, new providers, um, and they're really changing the space industry. And it's something that is really driving it um, you know, currently and you know, has, has an incredible chance to, to shape the future of this industry going forward. So let, let's go back to one of the statements that you just said. It, it's affecting a, everyone around, whether we like it or not. Just go over a few examples of that. I mean, I think all of us can think of a, a, a couple, but just walk us through some uh, of these examples of how this technology or how just this business really is affecting us pretty dramatically. Yeah. So do you, do you have a smartphone by any chance? Yes. Yes, I do. <laughs> well, our smartphones wouldn't be working in the way that they would right. without satellite technology. Even some of the apps that you're using, Uber, they're using GPS. GPS was something that was actually built for the military. And now it's something that we all have on our cell phones. And it helps mm -hmm. us figure out how to get from point A to point B. Do, uh, do, you, do you ever look at the financial markets? Uh, yeah, from time to time. Well, one of the most important parts is time. We're figuring out and agreeing on these universal time standards because of space-based systems that we have. So our financial markets wouldn't be able to operate in the same way that they do. And wow. um, any chance that uh, that that this interview that we're doing right now is possibly being broadcasted between us or to your uh, future listeners via satellite. There's a pretty good chance. So yeah. our communications networks in many cases um, are being supported by satellite-based systems. And so you have so many technologies that people are getting excited about or investing fortunes into. Things like uh, you know, blockchain, 5G, cloud computing, these are also technologies that are um, heavily reliant upon space-based systems. So it's really interesting because space doesn't necessarily get the credit that, that people should have for it, but it's something that is essential to, to things that we use every day and we take space for granted, unfortunately, in many, in many instances. No, and, and so, and I mean, even going way back when, I, I, I mean, I, I think like the microwave and, and, and some, some uh, technologies that we use all the time, Right, they 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 uh, they were started by NASA, or they were created by NASA, or even shaving cream uh, years ago uh, by by NASA for to address problems uh, in space travel. Yeah, and you know, I'm not sure if it's something that we'll be touching on later, but really, you know, so many people, um, you know, might get upset that governments are spending the amounts of money that they are on on outer space, and mm -hmm. they say you know, we have so many problems in our own backyard. You know, we need to feed people, we need to shelter people, we need clean water. You know, why why are we going to outer space when we can't even fix these problems at home? But you look at a lot of things that space is, is hoping to address and to figure out so we can expand as a, as a species into outer space. 
And a lot of these similar problems exist. How do you feed people if you're building a lunar, a lunar permanent base? How do you shelter people on Mars? How do you grow food sources? And you look at that and you say, well, you know what? We're spending money trying to figure out how to do it in space. But really, if we could figure out how to do it in space, there's a really good chance that we'll actually be able to take that technology right back and use it on Earth. And that might be able to help us in many ways that we don't actually realize today. And that's you know, so much of you know, the space industry and how it's evolved have been projects like that, where we're doing things to figure out how humankind can become more advanced in outer space. Um, and it's actually showing many benefits that maybe we find out instantly, maybe we find out years down the road, but it actually helps us not just in outer space, but back home on Earth. Now, let's let's talk more about that mil militarization of space and, and kind of this new space race that's happening. Uh, now, you have China, I think, is going try, trying to go to the moon, right, and maybe do something there. Then you have Elon Musk who's been talking about colonizing Mars. Walk us through... So, some of these kind of larger trends that are just starting to happen. So these are kind of natural progressions for, for you know, an advanced technologically savvy society. And, you know, if you look at the moon, the moon is extremely important. You know, we went to the moon first to say, hey, we went to the moon, we did some research projects and we learned something about, you know, this, this massive rock that is you know, orbiting Earth that yeah. everyone on the planet can see. Um, you know, almost every single day. Um, and that, that's good. That's interesting. It helps. And it's good to build technology that can do that. But what is the moon in the future? Well, the moon could be a launching point for people to get from the moon to Mars or from the moon and beyond. Some of the, the most expensive parts of doing a launch from Earth is that gravity makes things really tough to get off this planet. And the amount of energy and the amount of fuel that you need to provide and spend money on in order to send objects from Earth into orbit or beyond comes from these fuel costs. And if you have a, a lower gravity area like the moon, that you can actually send things from there, you could significantly reduce your costs. So the question becomes, you know, in the future, are we going to be sending things into outer space from the Earth? Or are we going to be able to have a permanent lunar base that we can actually do our projects from there and build out and go forward from there? And so what's really interesting is China realizes it and America realizes it. And most people that are interested in the space industry realize that the moon could play a very vital role for the entire uh, humankind to evolve. And so if one country goes to the moon and starts building a permanent colony, and does so in a way that doesn't allow others to also be able to participate and build things and utilize the moon and its resources, um, they might have a significant advantage going forward. Yeah. So we're at this really interesting time where it might sound like a way off wild kind of idea, but building out the infrastructure today could position companies or countries to dominate the space industry, not just for decades, but for centuries to come. Well, and, and so now let, let's go back to your ETF and, and, and the index. And so you mentioned that, you know, you have the pure play uh, trunk, 50% of the revenues from there. And, and so and then some of the other companies are more kind of broad based. Just walk us through a little bit more details here of how uh, you work towards building a, a really good index that satisfies kind of the needs of the customers and also takes advantage of this really growing trend. So the index that the fund tracks is, is the S-Network uh, Space Index. Um, it was partially um, built by a former director of the Space Foundation. And the index actually itself um, is the first ever index to ever receive the designation by the Space Foundation as a certified space data product. So what um, is involved in this index is they're looking for companies that are um, generating you know, significant revenues from uh, from space-related activities. So think companies that are you know, building and manufacturing satellites, actually operating those satellites once they're in orbit. Um, companies that are building rockets or launch equipment, um, as well as companies that are um, actually utilizing space-based services to deliver their, um, their product to consumers back on Earth. So 
you know, you'll, you'll see companies that are, you, know, you might be familiar with because they're large aerospace and defense names. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Boeing is, is, a, is a big uh, company in the space industry, as is Lockheed Martin, you know, two well-known American companies. But most people might not realize that they've uh, developed something that they call the United Launch Alliance, which is trying to help you know, the U.S. And, and others launch things into outer space. Um, so there's all these, you know, well-known things that these companies do, but there's also a lot of kind of side projects that some of these large, um, government contractors and space agency contractors are working on. Um, do, did you want to go through any of the companies? Yeah, we, we can go in. So in the next segment, we'll, what we'll do is we'll go through a number of those companies. Let's just end this segment and, and the, the, the one with the one person who obviously we've all heard of and it's heavily involved in space with Elon Musk, right? He has SpaceX and he's really the first one or one of the first ones to really try to privatize this. And you kind of went against all odds and nearly failed a number of times here. Talk a bit, a little bit about SpaceX and also about that, uh, the other project that they just launched by putting a lot of satellites in, in low orbit to try to provide internet to, to more people too. So I think SpaceX is doing some phenomenal things and it's, it's incredible for them to, to be able to lead as an example as well, showing that, you know, great ideas that have the right financing that can actually build out usable and great technology. Uh, you know, there, there's a place for you and you can get government contracts and you can, you know, achieve what you're trying to do and that, you know, you might have a long distance kind of time horizon for what the co- uh, company's trying to do, but if you're able to be successful, you know, th- there's space for you. And, you know, one of the great things that they're doing, which is revolutionizing the space industry, is um, the advent and, and creation of reusable rockets. Yeah. So, you know, our friends in the space industry like to compare it to, you know, imagine if every time you flew a plane from New York City to, to London and that plane landed and you just scrapped it. And then to fly back, you had to build a whole new plane all over again and to send it back. And every single time you're doing that, imagine the amount of time it would create that it would take to create all these new planes right. um, and, and the expense as well. So reusable rockets could be looked at just the same, not having to rebuild a rocket and scrap it um, and having it for you know, a one-time use and then being done with it um, really changes the, the cost paradigm for, for the space industry. And that has multiple effects, not just only does it, you know, is it, is it cheaper, but, you know, if you're a government and you're contracting SpaceX or someone using reusable rockets, you know, and you're being charged less, that gives you that much more of your budget to spend on other space related types of businesses. Then think about all the companies that want to do things in space, but it's just been so cost prohibitive. Well, the more they're able to get these costs down, the more R&D we'll be able to see, the more entrance into the space industry that we'll be able to see. So yes, it was fantastic that a, a U.S. commercial business was able to help NASA achieve their goal of sending U.S. astronauts from the U.S. to the International Space Station. But really, the, the great thing that, that we saw wasn't that. It was that we're getting the cost down for, for sending things into outer space and we could do it faster and we could do it cheaper. And the more we can do it more quickly and the cheaper it gets, the more types of companies we could see possibly emerge into the space industry. Perfect. And also went with him talking about going to Mars, you, you, you always see this like in movies and things like that with those kind of reusable rockets or the rocket being able to land and then just take off again. Uh, that is it'll probably when you we look back when, when it's looked back 100 years from now it's one of the large catalysts just the ability because it's mind-boggling every time I see it, it it's just unbelievable they pulled that off it, it really is you know th- th- there's some great science behind it but you know the ramifications that that has across the entire space industry could could be you know monumental so you know th- there's other companies that are working on you know similar types of technologies but SpaceX certainly has has garnered a lot of attention and coverage and have also secured a lot of government contracts as well yeah. as commercial contracts. And, you know, it, it's very important for the space industry to be able to um, actually um, not just say they can do something, but to actually achieve it because it provides that much more confidence and could allow for that much more investment going on into the space industry in the future. Do you think they're going to go public anytime soon in, in the next couple of years? Well, so you mentioned Starlink um, yeah. satellite project that that SpaceX is working on, and Elon Musk has teased that you know he might just spin that off and have that okay. as a as a public entity. 
Um, you know, it might come down to, you know, the ability to raise capital if she thinks that, um, you know, it's that SpaceX is a more viable company. If it's a public company, maybe they'll do that. But at the same time, um, you know, public companies provide, you know, require a lot more transparency. Um, and when you have a lot of government contracts as well going on, maybe you don't need or want as much transparency to be there. So, you know, I think Elon Musk will certainly make that decision when he thinks it's uh, the most advantageous for his company. Uh, I think, you know, if I had to guess, my guess is that he's more excited about some of these, you know, Mars missions than necessarily just the satellites. So if he considers that to be, you know, rockets and, you know, Mars missions and permanent colonies and things like that to be kind of, um, you know, his more crown jewel types of assets, yeah. um, you know, it wouldn't be shocking to see him spin off the other assets that, you know, could help him raise the money to achieve those other goals. Um, but, you know, I, I think I think time will tell. He's also teased that he won't let SpaceX go public until he's sent people to Mars. So, you know, we'll, we'll see if those timelines stick or if he even needs to go public. But um, you know, I, I think it's absolutely uh, worthwhile to pay attention to it because they are a big, big player in the space industry. And, and I did mention Starlink. And so, so briefly just explain what that uh, what that service is and, and how that could kind of change a lot of things. So, you know, it, it, everything is still early days. Um, you know, Starlink could have the ability to help link, you know, remote areas of this planet and help, you know, connect things quicker and more seamlessly. And, you know, the, the applications that you can have from a robust network of satellites, um, you know, can certainly you know, speed up our you know, internet speeds and help with things like 5G and, and whatnot. Um, you know, and, and, you know, by being able to, to have a really powerful network, it might lower the cost for other people to, to utilize these systems. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, there's you know, still a lot of risks that could be associated with that. So you send up these massive um, satellite constellations. Well, that's just less space in, in orbit for other people to send up satellites. And so, you know, anything you have to consider, anything that's in orbit could be a resource. But it could also be a, pot- a potential risk and something that you know, could either get accidentally knocked off of orbit or the technology could break down and you can't you know, contact these satellites. And all of a sudden they become you know, hurling piles of, of space junk that could take out other satellites and other systems. These, these are all risks. So you know, people talk about um, you know, kind of polluting the night sky and things like that from some of these massive constellations. And, you know, I'm, I'm maybe a little bit less, you know, worried about that as, you know, much as it is that, you know, there is, although it seems vast, there's only a finite amount of space in, you know, low earth orbit and, and so on. So, you know, some of these big satellite projects that people are talking about, you know, right now there's less than, you know, 3000 um, satellites in operation in orbit currently, you know, uh, a lot of, you know, Amazon or you know, Blue Origin, right. uh, Starlink, some of these other micro satellite companies are talking about sending up satellites, you know, north of tens of thousands of satellites in orbit. Wow. And you know, that could, you know, if not done absolutely flawlessly, could provide more risks. And, you know, there's a risk that, you know, you know low Earth orbit could become, you know, you know, almost hazardous or something that we won't be able to use if we don't do it correctly. So, um, you know, there's a lot of ideas what Starlink will be and how we'll be able to maximize using it. And you know, so far, so good. Perfect. So there are always opportunities in exploration and the space business looks like it is on the verge of taking off. Coming up next, we are going to discuss a few ideas. Stay tuned. MarketSmith will give you a huge edge in the stock market. Better stocks, bigger profits. MarketSmith is the top research platform for IBD. It's just the best tool for individual stock selection. Everything within MarketSmith is designed to bring those best stocks to the surface. It does a lot of the work for you of filtering down to the potential leaders. It's when you take the training wheels off and you're ready to invest on a more professional level. MarketSmith will help you take control of your investment life. If you want to get serious about investing, start your membership today. We are back with Andrew Chanin on Investing with IBD, sponsored by MarketSmith. Okay, Andrew, let's get into a few ideas. And now some of these ideas, uh, you know, I've I've been not that familiar with, uh, but it is really interesting to hear about them. And so the first stock that we're going to talk about, uh, the company name is Maxar Technologies, and the ticker symbol is M-A-X-R. And uh, now th- this is one of the, the larger holdings in the index. And what's interesting about this company? So Maxar might not be a household name, but in the space industry, they are a major player. And 
um, they've gone through some restructuring and moving of headquarters and things like that and selling off of assets. Um, but really now they um, you know, are really focused on things like satellite manufacturing and some satellite operations. Um, and the, in the past, they've even built things like uh, robotic arms and things like that that can wow. be used in outer space to help repair or grab onto things. So they have kind of a pretty wide-spanning business within the satellite area. Um, and you know, a lot of governments will contract them. So they'll help um, you know, Canada um, you know, create satellites that they need. And some of these things will then be, satellites will be launched by companies like SpaceX, which we had talked about earlier. Yeah. So a, a really big player in the satellite world, one that many people may not have exposure to or be familiar with, but they have um, kind of come out of a recent restructuring, um, really, really firing. And, um, you know, I, I think that there's a, a familiarity with this company that allows governments to, to feel okay, in many cases, contracting with them. And they have a, a pretty good success record of creating, um, you know, long lasting products that are still being used uh, for years to come. And, and it looks like over the last year or so, it has been, uh, Last year or a year, year and a half ago, it was like $4 was trading. Now it's around $17. So the, the business seems to be going pretty well and the market seems to, to uh, be appreciating it too. Yeah, you know, I think it was a, a little unloved um, and they went through this restructuring period and they really came out of it, I think, um, you know, showing that you know, they're, they're, you know, a business that can create products that are very much so in demand. Um, and they and getting repeat customers is you know, a great way of showing you know, customer satisfaction. And that's something that, that can be just as important in the space industry as in the, you know, the retail clothing industry. Perfect. Let's go to the second stock here. And this is Orbcom. And the ticker symbol is ORBC. And uh, what's interesting about this company? So this is kind of a logistics company. And okay. they rely on satellites to help with that. And but what they're doing in many cases is helping companies track fleets, track products, track their assets around the world. Oh, and wow. so they can help companies that want to have a better idea of where their own assets are at any given time to help them be more efficient. So it's a, could think of it almost as a, as a space-based logistics company, helping people figure out where predominantly their earth-based assets are. And so, you know, they, they might not be a household name because you don't necessarily need to hopefully know where your car keys are because you're not losing <laughs> them as much anymore. But for companies that, you know, it's incredibly important for them to figure out how to streamline things and not waste time and become more efficient, having the ability to have satellites in real time telling you where your fleets, your products, your assets, and even your people are, is something that um, seems like it's becoming uh, you know, even more important in this ever-connected world that we live in. And here's another company that uh, now, obviously with the pandemic, it really sold off and went down almost a, a dollar. And now it's come back to, to $3 or so, but it's still well off its high, but slowly coming back and, and looks like it's been uh, setting up a little bit and going sideways for the last month and a half or so. So that's Orbcom, uh, ticker symbol once again is ORBC. Now the next company that we're gonna talk about is uh, an Italian company and uh, the name of the company is Avio. And uh, what's so interesting about these guys? So most people are familiar with the, the launch companies here in the United States. They're the big flashy companies, you know, large industrial names, large aerospace and defense names or SpaceX and other ones that we've mentioned. But Avio is a company based out of Italy that is helping um, companies and governments also launch things into outer space. And so they use the Ariane rocket technology that they've been working and have made several iterations over the year. And, and what, what is that Ariane rocket technology what is that just a is that something it's different just a than different design or? it's okay. a different design um you know some uh you know they, they might do you know kind of smaller size projects where oh, you know spacex one of the big things is you know filling them up with as much capacity as they can and you know and sending things off into space but mm -hmm. um we noticed you know like a year ago um in the u.s we noticed when the 5g spectrum auction happened our government from a national security standpoint actually started blocking foreign companies from being able to participate in that spectrum auction. Wow. And that actually hurt some satellite companies, even European satellite companies that, you know, are from countries that are, you know, some of our best allies. Mm -hmm. And so looking at it from that standpoint, it wouldn't be shocking if European governments and companies start to say, 
hey, well, maybe we don't want to rely on U.S. companies as much if we have our own companies that can help us, you know, complete our missions and tasks. Because if they're not, you know, having an even, even playing field with us, why should we necessarily keep on doing that? So this provides a really interesting company that's had, you know, many years of a successful track record launching things into outer space for, for uh, companies as well as for governments. And, you know, it's kind of one of the things that I love about having a, a global ETF so much is that you can have all these different companies that we're talking about that people might be familiar with might not be, and they might not, even if they are familiar with them, they might not be able to access it because they're a U.S. investor or they're, you know, restricted from where they can invest in and having something like UFO that has over 30 companies from around the world could be a really interesting way to get diversification to all these different companies, whether they're competitors or doing completely different things. Yeah. Well, and, and that, that does bring up an interesting point because it, it, I mean, you're seeing it, and it doesn't really surprise me that it, a lot of these countries and are, are going to become more territorial. But somehow, this ETF, you, you almost benefit from what would have happened if everyone worked together. And space, you know, has been an extremely collaborative industry for many years. Mm -hmm. And, you know, more recently, state secrets, military endeavors, things like that have also kind of driven a wedge between some of these relationships. But, you know, where, where else on, on earth do you see, you know, Russians and Americans and, and Chinese and, and Japanese individuals all living under, you know, the ISS together at one time and collaborating and working together. So space has the power to unite us. But at many other cases, you know, there is a kind of a game theory and a space race 2.0, which is shaping up a little bit more militaristically. And although I'd hate to see, you know, things become, you know, a hot war or space to become completely a military domain, that certainly is something that governments are looking at today with the advent of, you know, the space force in the U.S. and abroad. You know, when one country does something, it doesn't happen in a vacuum and it almost forces the hand of other countries. So it wouldn't be shocking if, you know, um, you know, space defense and military capabilities started to really drive spending on the space industry in the future as well. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it is going to be really, really interesting to see what happens over the next few decades. Uh, let's go into a stock that most of us are familiar with. Uh, this is Virgin Galactic and the ticker symbol is SPCE. And uh, what's, uh, you know, R Richard Branson, he, he seems to be doing always these really interesting things. And he, he, came, he came out with this. And, and why is this company uh, doing so well? So they're the first publicly traded space tourism business. And space tourism um, is something that we haven't figured out how big the market is for, you know, demanding space tourism. But, you know, the fact that they're actually going out there and they're signing up, you know, thousands of people as, uh, you know, potential visitors to, you know, aboard the Virgin Galactic spaceships to, to have a couple minutes in low, uh, you know, in a low gravity, near zero gravity setting is something that is very appealing to, to people that have the financial resources to have a, a once in a lifetime type of experience that, you know, their neighbor down the street might not ever be doing in their lifetime. And, you know, and how much are they charging for, for that right now? With, Cause the, they have the a wait list, right? They do. Um, uh, you know, you have people like Justin Bieber and the, the Winklevoss twins and, you know, celebrities as well as, you know, uh, billionaires from around the world that are all interested in you know, taking part in this. And it's really um, not so much, you know, wow, this is you know, a, a revolutionary, amazing technology, because I think other companies may be able to do things similar. Um, but really, it's about an experience. And you saw most recently, they announced that they had brought over an executive from Disney. And I think that's to show, hey, you're going to spend a, a lot of money because you want to have this really memorable, differentiated experience. Well, we want that to be an incredible experience. So they're pulling people from all different areas with all different backgrounds to try to create this you know, incredible, uh, memorable experience for those with the, the amount of money to, to put down to, to take advantage of one of these um, space trips that they're providing. And, and what will be interesting is if they can grow that business enough that they can bring down the cost that all of a sudden more normal people ha have an opportunity at least to, to maybe uh, enjoy one of those trips too. 
Exactly. And, you know, as, as a business grows, they can, you know, potentially work on technologies to create, you know, different tiers and different levels of experiences and different types of ways of building out space tourism. Right now it's by, you know, dropping a, you know, a craft from a larger uh, craft and having it shoot out uh, you know, near the, near the end of um, you know, to the edge of space. Uh, but you know, maybe they work on other technologies. One area that they are also trying to work on is hypersonic point-to-point -point travel, and that's something that we might be able to use back on Earth. So that long trip where you don't, you know, uh, where you're stuck in a seat from the U.S. to Australia might be a lot faster if they're able to to work on that technology, and that could usher in you know new types of transportation and things that we can do. So you know, they're not just banking all on this one area, but it's definitely the the part that's getting headlines, and they're focused for you know a near term to sensor. Richard Branson up into outer space and to, and to hopefully have a, a long list of customers behind it. That said, um, you know, it is a volatile company. You know, they, they launched, uh, they IPO'd, uh, you know, in the low teens and it's come under $10 and, you know, you know, up to you know, almost $40 and so, <laughs> and, uh, you know, and it's come back down to the teens and back to the twenties. And, you know, this is something where I, you know, I think it's not just a Virgin Galactic thing. This is, you know, um, you know, when you're looking at an industry like space, where you're talking about long time horizons, you're talking about newer technologies and, and companies trying to do the unthinkable, um, you know, volatility is something that, you know, uh, would not be surprising. And, you know, again, that's why, you know, we created a fund like UFO. So people don't have to be experts. They don't have to put all their eggs in one basket. They could buy one share of UFO and you own all the companies that we just mentioned and, you know, 27 others that um, are doing all different types of things in space. And it becomes kind of a, you know, a, an, an easy access to, to global instant diversification for space companies around the world. That's perfect. Yeah. And, and yeah, I mean, it's such an, it, we're still really in the, obviously the very, very early innings of this, maybe we haven't even started the game yet. Uh, so having an ETF like this and, you know, even just letting you guys worry about what goes into the index uh, or not at this early point, that that might make sense for, for a lot of investors. And we mentioned Avio. That was a company that actually didn't meet the all the all the index methodology thresholds until recently. So that was actually just added in the the last rebalance for the fund. And the fund also has the an index have the ability to to kick out companies that are no longer space focused, or they spin off their space assets and things like that. So as opposed for an investor trying to jump in and out of stocks and rebalance and whatnot, the fund is doing that on its own. So it could be an interesting way for people to get exposure to the space industry. Excellent. So there are a few ideas that are worth adding to your watch list. Thanks, Andrew, for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Next week, we will have Katie Stockton on the show. Katie is the founder and managing partner of Fairlead Strategies. She is also a chartered market technician. So that's it for this week on Investing with IBD. I'm Arusha Paris, and thanks for listening. And for this week's Nilton Charts, make sure to go to Investors.com slash podcast, where you'll find details for each episode in the podcast episode section. And make sure to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast if you haven't already. We'd really appreciate it. You can also send us your questions and comments to investingpodcast at Investors.com. We would love to hear from you and may use your comments on an upcoming episode. This podcast is for informational and educational purposes only, and nothing should be construed as a recommendation to buy, hold, or sell any securities. Make sure to consider consulting with your financial advisor before making any investment decisions.